Let's take a look and read together um, chapter 4, verse 7 and following. Now, what's really coming to the fore at this point is the suffering that is at the heart of Paul's ministry. Uh, in 4.7 all the way through 5.10, he's going to talk a lot about suffering, persecution, uh, the role of death um, in his ministry in terms of uh, he uses that in the sense of, you know, he says that we're always in the process of dying as we follow Christ. Uh, there's a pattern going on here, the laying down of one's life for the sake of the gospel. Um, and then he's going to move into one of the most theologically rich passages in all of Scripture on the nature of, of hope for life after life after death. You know, the idea of, of life after death and the hope that, that we have for life after death. But really what he's pointing ultimately to is what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death, the resurrection, the resurrection body. And we'll talk... Uh, some about that as we go through. So let me read this passage found in uh, chapter 4, verse 7 and following, and uh, we'll take it for, uh, for uh, the time being down through verse 15 and talk about this lovely imagery of what I call treasure in terracotta. All right, so let's, let's look at it together. But we have this treasure in jars of clay in order that this extraordinary power might be seen for what it is, power that comes from God and not from us. In every way, we are being afflicted but not restricted, baffled but not to the point of despair, abused but not abandoned, knocked down but not terminated. One translation says, knocked down but not knocked out. We are always carrying around the dying of Jesus in our body in order that also the life of Jesus might be made known through the medium of our body. For we who are alive are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus in order that also the life of Jesus might be made known by means of our mortal flesh. Therefore, death is at work in us, but life in you." But since we have the same spirit of trust in accordance with what has been written, I trusted, therefore I spoke, we also trust, and therefore we also speak, knowing that the one who raised Jesus also will raise us with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sake, in order that when the grace has spread dynamically through many people, it might cause thanksgiving to overflow to God's glory. And so there again, you have this idea of, of the glory of God. You've seen that theme kind of woven through this whole section. So let me talk a little bit about this idea of treasure uh, in terracotta. We've been looking at a series of reflections that Paul has on the nature of authentic ministry. And in 4, 1 through 6, we saw him say, because of the nature of this ministry, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to persevere in the things that God has given me to do. Well, what we find in 4.7 and following is that the very nature of Christian ministry is that it is fragile. It involves suffering. Uh, it involves uh, carrying out ministry in this mortal flesh in a way that, that is difficult at times. And I find this section wonderfully... Um, just wonderfully encouraging because there's kind of a reality to it uh, that 
that says the frailty that I feel in my life and my ministry, the vulnerability that I feel. Um, as I get older, I tell my, my students that um, I'm longing more and more for the resurrection body, you know, as I, as I get older. And that reality, that mortal reality is manifested at times because ministry is hard. Uh, you see the, the most radical forms of that when people are facing overt persecution, they're getting beaten up for the gospel. One of the guys at the Bible um, school in Netanya in Israel that I've talked about, one of the brothers there was out just sharing the gospel in one of the, on one of the school campuses there in Israel, and a couple of ultra-Orthodox guy, guys came up and beat him up so badly it put him in the hospital, just beat the stew out of him. And, you know, so there are people in the world who are facing that kind of overt persecution. But we, we face different levels of our frailty and vulnerability and mortality um, as we go through ministry. Some of you struggle maybe more at the emotional level with some of the pressures that you face in ministry. Some of you are facing hardship because you've made choices in ministry that means that you are, are constantly under financial pressure. Some of you are, are facing physical challenges uh, that are directly related to um, the difficulty of your ministry. Um, I, again, some of the brothers and sisters out in western part of China have very hard ministries physically. They sleep in places that are difficult. They do a lot of traveling by car to get to long distances to meet the different house churches and things like that. They're in very low socioeconomic situations on a constant basis and they don't have many financial resources. So they're facing all of these financial impediments and difficulties physically because of the gospel. And, and so Paul is talking here about the fact that it's normal in his ministry to suffer. That's a normal aspect of ministry for him. Now, someone was asking, I think it was yesterday, somebody was chatting after one of the sessions and was saying, you know, that, that we, can, we can kind of almost feel guilty because like in a place like South Africa or like in the United States or, or even in Vancouver, Canada, we don't face a lot of overt persecution. I mean, people aren't kind of following us around to beat us up because of the gospel normally. Am I reading that correctly here in South Africa? Yeah, so he was saying, well, should we be being persecuted more and more overtly if we're really uh, people of the gospel? And the reality is that um, persecution has taken place consistently in the life of the church through the centuries, but it doesn't happen in all places at all times. And we should be thankful that we live in a place where there is freedom, where we can talk openly about the gospel. Uh, you know, those are good things, and we shouldn't kind of go out looking to be persecuted. But the reality is, if we are standing for the gospel, we are going to face different kinds of pressures from the society that's getting to be more and more in uh, the, the U.S. context. It, it's going to be more and more in the Canadian context. Right now, for instance, a person can be persecuted or prosecuted for hate speech if they speak publicly about homosexuality in a certain way. That's a possibility, and that's probably coming to the North American uh, context. So, you know, don't wish that we had more persecution now. Use the freedom that we have. But what Paul is saying is in his ministry, in his moment of ministry, persecution is a normal kind of reality because as he goes throughout the, the Mediterranean world and is proclaiming the gospel, he's bumping up against power structures 
like in Judaism of the day, sometimes with the Roman government power structures, uh, but, but especially with the Judaism of his day that would fight back, you know, physically and, and bring about persecution of Paul very directly and overtly. In, in, the, in the context of 2 Corinthians, what's going on is the false teachers were saying, look, this guy spends time in jail. He gets beaten up on a regular basis. Uh, he's in all of these poor living situations. And therefore, obviously, he's not a valid leader. Valid leaders aren't getting beaten up every time they go to a new town. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, no, the suffering I'm facing for the gospel is a badge of authenticity. It's a normal aspect of authenticity. Uh, that badge will look differently for us if we're in a place like South Africa or North America. The pressures applied to us may be different. But um, the question for us is, how do we live out that authenticity? All of us are going to face the frailty of human life in the course of carrying out our ministries. So if, even if we're not facing overt persecution uh, we can take this passage and say that there is a form of dying that we need to live out as we are carrying forth the gospel in our lives and our ministries. Even if it's not overt persecution, it, it's something else, right? So we'll talk about that as we kind of go through. All right, so we have this, um, this very, very interesting passage, and he begins with the imagery of clay pots. So look back up at... Uh, at verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay in order that this extraordinary power might be seen for what it is, power that comes from God and not from us. Do you see again him talking about God as the source of the transformative power of ministry in the gospel? So let's, uh, let's kind of talk about this um, just for a minute. We have this treasure... In, char, uh, in jars of clay. So the, this treasure, the idea of this treasure is the gospel, the glorious gospel that he's been talking about, the manifestation of the presence of God in the world is, is the most awesome, wonderful thing in the world. If God is intersecting with this world, if God is doing things, initiating things in this world to bring about change, there's nothing more important that we could be involved in. There's nothing more, more valuable in the world. If you are made in the image of God to know the person of God, and that's why you were made, there's nothing more valuable than that. And the gospel is at the center of what we are really about as human beings and, and what God is drawing us into. And Paul says, yet the amazing thing is that that treasure, the carrying out of that treasure in the world, is done in this very fragile kind of container of human beings and human life. You know, I, I wonder at times, I don't know about you, but, but why doesn't God just stick his face out of the cloud and say to everybody in the world, hey, I'm real, the gospel is real, believe it. Why, do, why doesn't he do that? Why, why is God carrying out the program of advancing his kingdom in the world through very weak, fragile, inadequate vessels like you and me? Well, I'm not God. I can't answer why God, why God is doing that. But that is God's agenda. God is carrying forth the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom through normal human beings in human life, human communication, human communities, and building the world in that way. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's on the basis of relationship. 
It's on the basis of transformation of life. If God stuck his face out of the clouds, that would be a form of compulsion. And, you know, just kind of God saying, this is the way it's going to be. What God does instead, beautifully, is he appeals and he calls for people to respond to the gospel, you know, in the context of human relationships and the proclamation of the gospel and that kind of thing, okay? I'm not saying that God's not, you know, the one who is initiating and all, again, don't want to go back to theological systems and stuff, but I'm just saying that God in his sovereign wisdom has chosen that the way he's going to build his church is in the context of relationship. And he's going to do it through human frailty. It's the thing that's just amazing about the gospel. It's so counterintuitive to the world. It's not on the basis of power in one sense. It's on the basis of suffering and human frailty and the the laying down of life in order for life to be gained. So what about this imagery of the jars of clay or the, or the, the clay pots, uh, that kind of idea? Let me give you a couple of quotes. Richard Baxter said this um, in speaking about the, the treasure in clay pots. He said, these with the rest which I mentioned before when I spake of my infirmities. He's talking about his own frailty and his, his illnesses and things like that. These were the benefits which God afforded me by affliction. I humbly bless his gracious providence who gave me his treasure in an earthen vessel and trained me up in the school of affliction and taught me the cross of Christ so soon that I might be rather theologus crucis, as Luther speaketh, than theologus gloriae, and a cross-bearer rather than a cross-maker and imposer." So he's saying, praise God that early on in my ministry I learned suffering and that God taught me through in sufferings to uh, bear the cross of Christ. So he speaks about um, this, this treasure being carried out in clay pots. Paul's word picture here with the clay jars uh, captures a common aspect of everyday life in the Mediterranean world. Clay jars were kind of the throwaway. They were the cheap things that people used for uh, eating on, drinking from. Uh, they, were, they were what we think of kind of paper cup, paper plate kind of things. I'm assuming you have all of that kind of throwaway stuff here in South Africa. Just the cheap stuff. You know, you're not bringing out the good china. Uh, these are the things that are just the, the inexpensive kind of stuff. In fact, in that world at that time, you had factories, you know, people that were kind of in an assembly line. They would be making these things and putting them in the ovens, and, and, uh, and, and yet they, they were so inexpensive to make, and they were pretty cheap. So that if you dropped a, a jar on the floor and it broke, you would take those pieces of the jar and put them in a little basket, and that became your notepad stuff for the week. So you would take up a piece of clay jar, and you would scratch out your grocery list on that piece of, piece of clay jar and take it with you to the, um, to the market. Um, and we actually have uh, ostraca like that uh, from the ancient world, pieces of clay that, that, you know, are written on that kind of inform us about some of the writing and the language of the world at that time. And so uh, this was cheap stuff. So Paul is saying that um, this treasure is found in very fragile vessels. The reason why the clay jars were less expensive is because they also were not very durable. They, they would break, they would get cracks and, and things like that. 
John Chrysostom, speaking of this imagery, says he used the term earthen in allusion to the frailty of our mortal nature and to declare the weakness of our flesh, for it is no better than earthenware, which is soon damaged and destroyed by death, disease, and even variations of temperature. The power of God is most conspicuous when it performs mighty works by using vile and lowly things. So, Paul says that the reason why God uses frail vessels like him, and like you and me, is in order that something would be taking place. What is that, in order that? In order that this extraordinary power might be seen for what it is, power that comes from God and not from us. Now, somebody was, was talking to me a few minutes ago about the context here in Africa, that there are a lot of ministries that are, that are based on the power of the, of the minister, you know, his ability to do miracles especially. They were saying that if you were chatting with somebody about authentic ministry and that kind of thing, then this person would, would say, well, that's not real ministry. Real ministry is where miracles are going to be manifested and, and that kind of thing. It's kind of a power orientation that says, I've got this power to carry out the ministry. It's exactly opposite of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that, no, authentic ministry is going to be frail. It's going to be suffering. Uh, at times, it's going to seem like it's not very effective and that kind of thing. In order that, it's clear that the power is really from God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles. Even in Paul's life, at times, his apostleship was characterized by the miraculous. Okay, so we're not saying that that's wrong. But what Paul is saying is that real uh, Christian ministry is going to involve frailty at times, as a way of manifesting the power of God and the glory of God. Um, and so Paul's uh, putting himself into situations where he's proclaiming God gospel. He's not going looking for trouble, but he's saying in the natural course of my ministry, uh, it's being manifested that frail vessels who are weak and fragile actually are the means of carrying forth the gospel. It's interesting when you look at different points in, in church history, just as an example. In Ethiopia, years ago I read a book about what happened in Ethiopia during World War II. Some of you may know the story of the church there. But missionaries, as Mussolini's forces came into Ethiopia, uh, they drove out the Christian missionaries. And at that time, with the, the group kind of surrounding this, um, this book, um, I think it was called Fire on the Mountain was the name of the book, or if any of you are familiar with that book. But it's about the revival that took place in Ethiopia because the missionaries were driven out. At that time, I think there were only two or three churches and about 100 baptized believers in the country. And there was just radio silence in terms of communication between the missionaries on the outside and what was going on with the church on the inside of Ethiopia at that time. And this book is kind of telling the story of what was happening. What was happening was the church, uh, because the believers only knew what to do from the Bible itself, is they believed the Bible, they started proclaiming the gospel, God started working among them. And again, it's like reading the book of Acts. 
And you would have uh, a leader of a Christian leader in a village being drugged down the street by the people who were beating him and pulling out his beard, and he would be preaching the gospel to the people on both sides of the road as he was taken down through. And because of their willingness to suffer in that way, the church exploded. It went from about 100 baptized believers, I think it was to about 100,000 believers in the church of Ethiopia in those five years, and exploded from a couple of churches to, I think, over 100 churches. It was just amazing what took place, but part of it was because of the willingness to suffer on, on the part of the believers in the church. And you've seen that in places like China and other parts of the world. It's the frailty and people persevering in the glory of God in the midst of frailty that then becomes a vehicle for the message of the gospel in that place. And that's really what Paul is talking about here, that uh, we have this treasure of the gospel we have it in these uh, terracotta vessels. We have it in terracotta vessels. And uh, so let me uh, kind of pull the, the outline up here. So in verse 7, we've got this idea of that we are purposeful pots, if you will, that, uh, you know, these fragile bodies we have are purposeful in that uh, they are the vehicle that God uses for the carrying forward of the gospel. Uh, look at the way he describes his affliction in verses 8 and 9. He says, in every way we are being afflicted, but not restricted. He's kind of in Greek doing some play on words here. I tried to bring that out in the translation. It's a little bit hard to do. But he says, we're being afflicted, but not restricted. The word there means bound in. We're not being shut in and shut off from being able to carry the gospel forth. Uh, we're feeling pressure in terms of being uh, restricted. You know, people are trying to hem us in and that kind of thing, but they're not able to stop the gospel going forward. He says, we are baffled, but not in despair. Now, again, this is so encouraging to me because it means that as even the apostle Paul, who had seen Jesus and had God communicate with him very directly, at times, Paul was somewhat baffled and confused about what was going on in his ministry, in his life. Again, I, I just find that very hopeful. Because I experience that kind of confusion, confusion at times myself. All right? So he says that uh, we're baffled, but we are not in despair. In other words, we don't get to the point of giving up. Even though at times it can be confusing and, and difficult and that kind of thing. He says we are abused, but not abandoned. Uh, Paul was getting beaten up, but he knew that God was still with him. We are getting knocked down, but we're not knocked out. We're not terminated. So the imagery that he uses here is, man, we go through all of these crazy, difficult things. Why is that? Because what we're doing is we're following in the, in the path or the footsteps of Jesus. In verses 10 through 12, he says that this is the pattern that we see in the life of Jesus, that death leads to life. Jesus brought about life for the church by laying down his life in death. And there's a pattern there for the Christian minister as well. We, always, we are always carrying around the dying of Jesus in our body in order that also the life of Jesus might be made known through the medium of our body. So he, he's saying that uh, a normal aspect for him with persecution, he's always very conscious of his mortality because of the type of situation that he's in. But we're, we're living this out in a way of carrying the gospel forward so that Jesus can be known to people 
through the proclamation of the gospel. Verse 11, for we who are alive are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus in order that also the life of Jesus might be made known by means of our mortal flesh. Therefore, death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, what, what would you say is, for those of us who are not in situations of persecution, overt persecution, how does this manifest in our lives and ministries? What, what's the nature of dying? How do we follow Jesus in a discipleship of ministry that actually is, is, is living this out? What would you say? Yes. Okay, obedience, a great point. Obedience and following the Lord into ministry at times is going to choose, be, mean choosing a path that is not comfortable, where we have different kinds of pressures uh, on us, and, and saying yes to Christ is costly in some way. All right? That, in a sense, that's a form of dying to yourself. You're not choosing the easiest path. You're not choosing what is the most, quote, profitable path according to the world. But you're saying yes to Christ in obedience, turning away from your own desires and turning to his desires. That's a form of dying in a sense, right? What would be another example? Yeah. Okay, you need to learn it before you can teach it. What, do you, what specifically do you have in mind? Okay, so it goes back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that as we suffer and go through very, you know, rough times and difficulties, and yet depend on the grace of God in, in the midst of that, that we're also able then to turn around and model that to other people and show them how to make sense out of their suffering in the world of different kinds, even though it's not persecution necessarily. All right, so that would be something. All right, somebody else, yeah? Okay, um, persevering in the midst of disappointments, all right? Sometimes emotional stress and pressure can be very, very intense. You know, the, the persevering in the midst of psychological and emotional pain at times in ministry can be tough. And when we continue to say, this is hard, but I will continue to follow Christ. I will not turn away from the path of Christ in this, that is a form of dying to yourself. All right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the idea of social pressure, popularity, those kind of things. And I have a feeling in... in uh, the Western world, uh, we're going to face this more and more, I think, uh, just given the nature of the age in which we live. Uh, it's not going to be a popular thing to hold to a Christian worldview, so that's, that's something else, yep. So persevering in that. Anybody else? One other person? Uh, let's go to the sister right back here, yeah. Yeah, sometimes if you're sticking to the gospel and being faithful to the revelation of God's word, uh, sometimes that can be very painful, even as people around you in the church are opposing 
what you're doing. And you know that you're being faithful to the Scriptures, right? And yet, it's, it can be very, very difficult to persevere in that kind of thing. So all of these are not the suffering of persecution necessarily, but they are a form of suffering and dying to yourself, not to, not to minimize the significance of those who are, who are suffering overtly, but the idea is staying the path. Why? What, what, what is the purpose for the carrying forth of the gospel in the world? for the propagation of the gospel in the world. And the, the reality is, if the gospel is going to go forward through your life and my life, it's going to go th- forward through frailty, in a sense. Not primarily because we have these great strengths, but in, in part because we're persevering in the midst of our own weaknesses and limitations and our frailties, so that the attention can be drawn to God and not to ourselves. Then in verses uh, 13 through 15... Uh, we have the idea of faith, communication, and the spread of the gospel. So look at, at that passage again. But since we have um, the same spirit of trust in accordance with what has been written, I trusted, therefore I spoke, we also trust, therefore we also speak, knowing that the one who raised Jesus also will raise us with Jesus and present us with you. And then he, he ends up by saying, you know, we're doing all of this, Paul in essence says, for the sake of the gospel. We're doing all of this for the sake of the gospel going forward in your life. Now, what he's doing here in, is he's quoting an Old Testament passage. And uh, the part of the, the Old Testament he's quoting is Psalm 116.10. It's, it's actually the Greek translation that Paul's quoting here, Psalm 116.10. The whole of that passage reads like this, Hallelujah. I believed, therefore I spoke, but I was brought very low. So the context of that psalm is the psalmist is suffering. But he says, in the midst of that suffering, I believed, I trusted God, and therefore I spoke. So Paul is applying that to himself, and he's saying in the midst of his suffering... He continues to trust God in the midst of that and then continues to speak the word for the advancement of the gospel in the world. That's a great pattern, actually, that in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we continue to choose trust in the midst of our frailty and our weakness and our limitation. We make a decision that we are going to trust Christ. And uh, we do that on the basis of what God has revealed Faith is not a leap in the dark. You do understand that, right? Faith is not a leap in the dark. That is a modern conception of faith. Uh, It's actually based on existentialism that says, well, you have all the facts and scientific facts and all these kind of things, and so I'm going to have to turn my back on the facts and just believe God if I'm going to maintain Christianity. That's, That's existentialism. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is that God has revealed things about himself in his word. And because he has revealed truth, I will stand on that truth, and I will trust that what he says is right and true. Um, I have a wonderful relationship with my wife. I'm glad that she was so thankful she's able to be here. It's, it's just great to, to have Pat here. And one thing that you may not know about Pat is she is a wonderful cook. And sometimes I will be at work, and I will um, call home, and I'll say, honey, what are we having for supper tonight? 
And she'll say, uh, well, actually, I'm making Cajun beans and rice, which is one of my favorite dishes. And at that point, I don't worry for the rest of the day and go around and go, wow, I wonder if, I wonder if we're really having Cajun beans and rice. Because I know my wife would not joke about something that serious, right? <laughs> so when she says, we're having Cajun beans and rice, you know what happens? I begin to salivate right there on the, on the phone because I know, I trust her deeply that she is serious about food and she's going to feed me well when I get home for supper, right? Well, and I jokingly say all that, but, but there's a reality in which I do trust Pat implicitly. I know her. We have a pattern of life in which I can trust, trust her completely. I know that. And so what Paul is saying here, that because of the revelation of God, what God had worked in his life, he trusts God, and therefore he speaks the truth of the gospel in his life even in the midst when things aren't going well, when responses are not good, when suffering is taking place, the pattern is still there that he trusts God and then he, begin, he continues to speak the word and speak the truth of the gospel. There, there are going to be times in life and ministry, and I, I know that you know this, when we are suffering, we are struggling, we are like Paul, we are confused, um, you know, because things are not going well. And sometimes what we do is we come to places where we say, Yet I will trust him. Yet I will, even in the face of this. And therefore, we continue to speak the gospel. We continue to speak the truth to ourselves and to others, even in the midst of things being very, very difficult. So the idea of us being treasure in terracotta, of having the treasure of the gospel in fragile uh, bodies and fragile lives, is this, is this is normal Christian ministry. It's authentic Christian ministry when we are living out the gospel and persevering in the midst of even very, uh, very difficult situations. All right? Um, we're going to stop there. I'm going to uh, see if just two or three questions, if you have anything just to clarify what we've just been talking about, and then we're going to, to have prayer and wrap up for the day. Thank you so much for your, your attention. Do we have just one or two questions that someone wants to ask about this, Sean? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's maybe more an application question, so if it's, now's not a good time, that's fine. But, so I'm just thinking of you know, preaching, teaching a passage like this into a, a more Western culture, that has such a strong aversion to suffering, almost like a righteous inversion, aversion. This is not supposed to happen. To the extent that God is put in the dock, so, so God is seen as being amoral or immoral for allowing us to suffer, that someone hears the end in a culture, that culture is kind of, you know, Christians are not immune to that. So that someone even hears this and they're saying, basically this is what God is saying, he makes us look bad so that he looks good. How would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And part of that you, you, you see is what Paul's up against, too. He's up against the, the culture of success and wealth and buying yourself out of manual labor and all of this kind of thing. So he's up, something, up against something very similar. There is quite an aversion. Like in American culture, for instance, 
to uh, suffering and death and that kind of thing. And, and what I think we can do, though, is, is bring around some analogies that people can identify with. Uh, for instance, um, many of us see aspects of life where pain is, is worth, you pay a price of pain for something good coming out of that. You can, for instance, appeal to people in athletics that way. When I was playing American football in high school, we had one of the older guys who was a star, you know, he would, he would be doing these, these drills and everything during the summer, the heat of the summer when it was about 39 degrees outside and humid. And uh, he would be, be doing these drills and he'd, he'd be saying, no pain, no gain, no pain, no gain, you know. And so we have an area like that in which we say, okay, I'm willing to pay a price and, and, and pay a price in pain in athletics in order to accomplish something that needs to be achieved. We could then say, you know, it's the same way in relationships. No relationship goes forward, whether it's a, a marriage relationship or parent to child. There's always a cost for good relationship and healthy relationship, always a cost. Anybody that goes into marriage and says, this is all about me, I just want to feel good, uh, they're not going to be successful in marriage. So one thing that we might be able to do is draw some analogies to say, what aspect of life is worth having that doesn't have a cost, that doesn't have certain aspects of pain to it? And then say, you know, here's the amazing thing about the gospel. God himself was willing to allow his son to go through suffering in order to rescue us. You know, we see a hero in our culture. Let's say that there's a plane crash and and somebody is diving back in and, and sacrificing their life to save others. Well, everybody on the news, national news, is going to stand up and cheer and say, that person is a hero. Well, that's a value because somebody is paying a price. They're expending their own life in terms of suffering in order for, for something good to come about. And so we could say that, is that not what, what God is doing in Christ? That God's on a rescue mission. He comes after us. And then those who follow him are willing to suffer even in the face of, a, of an opposing culture for the sake of the gospel going forward in the lives of other people. That I think those would be some, some analogies that we might use. But you're, you are right. We're up against a, you know, a worldview that at times has an aversion to those kind of things. But is that helpful a little bit? Okay. All right. Some, I'm sorry? Yeah, back, back here. You want to just shout it out? Okay, yeah, here, we'll give you the microphone. You look so hip. I just feel cooler just by being in your prayer. <laughs> Thank you. So just a practical question. Um, just the, um, there's a lot of emphasis on the suffering aspect of ministry and maybe some guidelines or practical advice that you can give us to where do we draw the line where we actually now, you know, actually withdraw from ministry as a minister because, you know, we, like, it almost sounds like Paul, you know, he's like, no matter what you face, persevere, don't um, stop or don't give up for the sake of the gospel. But, you know, so many times as ministers, we go through burnout or we reach a stage where we actually burn out. Like, where do you draw the line where you actually like, hey, man, I think this is time where I recruit and, you know, when I'm healthy again, I step back into ministry. Well, that's, that's, a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, there, there is, a, is a balance here. Let, let's remember that, that what we're seeing in 2 Corinthians is one part of Scripture, and Scripture is balanced, <clears throat> and Scripture also talks about, you know, 
the wisdom of at times drawing aside. So like, for instance, with Jesus, the pattern you see in Mark's gospel, for instance, is that Jesus and the disciples pour themselves out, pour themselves out in ministry, and then Jesus turns and says, okay, come aside now. Let's go rest. Let's have a time of Shabbat, you know, of Sabbath to rest. There are people who destroy their own lives and destroy their family lives because they are unwise in the management of their resources. So um, what I would say is that we need to remember this is one slice it's not the way all of life works for most of us, uh, but it, 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 2 Corinthians would be very instructive to us when we are going through those times of suffering and needing you know, the encouragement of perseverance. But I would say in terms of, of general balance, are we living in community with other believers who are also you know, in ministry? Do we have a network of support, in other words? Uh, where we have people speaking into our lives wisely, where they're letting us know that, that really the burnout we're experiencing is not simply because of the difficulties of, of the ministry. It's because we're not being wise. Uh, for instance, there's never a rhythm of Sabbath in our lives. And Sabbath, by the way, is still a principle of Scripture. It's not a law. It's a gift. It's a principle that we come along and we have a rhythm of our lives. So do we have people around us who are able to help us measure the resources of our lives and, and tell us when we're being unwise and we're burning out because we're being stupid in the way that we're handling our decisions? Um, my wife is very good to, to help me <laughs> say no to things, um, and I'm, I'm trying to learn that. But So, so there, is, there is a balance. Uh, there are times when God may send us into a time of withdrawal and renewal. That's, that's very, very important. But I think that that's worked out by living deeply in Scripture so that we're getting the whole counsel of God and seeing the principles we need to be living out as we live in community with others who are, who, who are walking with God and who know us and can speak into our lives. I think that's very important that we have that kind of uh, you know, relationship with the community of faith. So I hope if you're in ministry, those of you who are pastors here, I hope you have other pastors in your life who you're walking with who can kind of give you encouragement and give you discernment when it's time to, to be discerning. Uh, but then I do think there are times when it's just hard, when life is just hard. And, and we need to have kind of uh, at times the encouragement of the Scriptures to hang in there and persevere and not, not give up just because it's hard. And, and, you know, again, discerning exactly the balance on all that. I only think we can do that by living in Scripture and living in community and then living before the Lord, um, if that makes some sense. All right. Let's have a closing word of prayer. He's gonna, oh, I'm sorry. He, he's going to pray. Oh, some, who's going to pray? Okay, the brother here. Yeah. Here you go. My, my friend from all the way from Cape Town, so he's going to pray for us. So pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, today. Thank you that um, we've had a clear presentation of the truth. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, more and more our lives would be characterized um, by authentic gospel ministry. Uh, Lord, that we would be willing to embrace suffering and hardship for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Uh, Lord, help us always to remember that even though we are jaws of clay, we carry a great treasure, and that though we are afflicted, um, we are not crushed, though we may be perplexed, we are not driven to despair, and though we may be persecuted, we are not forsaken, 
And though we may be struck down, we are not destroyed. Um, Father, thank you that your grace is sufficient and that in our weakness, your great power is seen. Help us to um, also um, teach the gospel plainly, um, trusting that you would work uh, mightily to transform and change people, uh, that you would shine the light of the, of the glory of Christ in their hearts um, and uh, remove that, that veil from, from people's faces. So grant us a good night's rest. Please grant George and Pat a good night's rest and energize them for tomorrow. And Lord, um, thank you for your grace and thank you for your word. Uh, and uh, we commend ourselves to your care for Christ's sake. Amen.